everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, we've been taking a break this month to do some flashback stories. We've covered Uncanny X-Men Minus One and X-Men Minus One. Today, we're jumping into what they call X-Factor Minus One, which is another issue from that weird flashback month they did in the middle of the 90s. This is a Howard Mackey, Jeff Matsuda look back into Mr. Sinister's manipulations into the childhood of Alex Summers. Uh, And we're going to have a great time today. I am thrilled to be joined by three new friends, all of whom I met when I went to FlameCon and I was just meeting people and feeling inspired uh, right and left by everything people are doing in this incredible big world outside. Uh, I'm going to let each of my guests introduce themselves. Uh, let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. Uh, you know, feel free to share any of your comic book nerd history in there if you'd like to. And then uh, the the weird question that I have for everyone today during introduction is, what's the best and or worst sandwich you've ever had? <laughs> let's uh, let's begin with Mr. Michael Elliott. How are you, Michael? Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Elliott, gender pronouns he, him. I'm a professor of sociology at Towson University in Maryland, and you would not necessarily know me unless somehow you've stumbled on my work or you've seen me collecting data at Comic-Cons, which is where I ran into (laughs) Chad. Uh, Nonetheless, I dabble in globalization, world history, culture, religion, and now fandom studies. I'm going to ask you more questions about fandom studies in just a moment. I am fascinated by the research that you're doing, and I'm so happy to have you here, Michael. What's the uh, best and or worst sandwich you've ever had? Okay, so I had to get permission from my wife to talk about the worst sandwich (laughs) I've ever had. Let me start with that one. My wife is from Sweden, and she loves Swedish caviar, which sounds like it would be really good. But Swedish caviar is just fish paste in a tube. And you just spread it on whatever you want. And when we met, she said, I love this. This is my favorite food. You've got to try this. I took one bite and I almost gagged. Um, So Swedish caviar. I'm sorry, Swedes out there who are listening. Not my favorite sandwich. They also do blood pudding too, which I haven't been Mm -hmm. able to bring myself to eat yet. Uh, But my favorite sandwich, I'm, I'm in Maryland. And Marylanders like the crab. So a couple weeks ago, I had a mac and cheese and crabbed grilled cheese sandwich. And it was heavenly. It was an artery clogger, but all good things in life, I suppose, are artery cloggers. Swedish caviar, is it salty or like? Okay. I'm assuming extremely salty. Yeah, it's called Kallas caviar. It's just a popular brand. You can see it in the convenience stores there in a tube. I plan to never try it. (laughs) (laughs) That's how adventurous you are, Chet. (laughs) Well, I'm not only, well, we'll we'll talk about me in a minute. Uh, I'm thrilled to welcome our uh, our next guest, Uh, someone who I have researched a little bit and is kind of a big deal. I'm excited to have Mr. Justin Hall here. How are you, Justin? Oh, hey, thank you. Um, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, And I do have to back up, Michael, on the... um, disgustingness of the Swedish caviar. No offense to, to Swedes and all the beautiful things that they brought to contributed to world culture. Caviar is not one of them. Um, <laughs> but um, oh, I also have to apologize for my cough. And so to, um, I've been dealing with a sort of rattling um, uh, after effects of a, of a chest cold. But I do have a, a slightly amusing story where I went in to get um, 
uh, lung x-rays uh, to make sure there was no problems. And um, the doctor then told me that I had spots on my lungs and that I should come back for a second x-ray. And I was like, oh, really worried. Um, but she said, well, it's it might just be um, shadows of your nipples, which I didn't know was a thing. Apparently, I have shady nipples. <laughs> and so back, and they gave me the little stickers. The tech, the technician gave me little stickers with little ball bearings on them to put over my nipples, which didn't fit my nipples. And I, you know, so I was sort of asked her about this, and she gave me sort of a side eye. She was like, "Make it work." And so I was trying to, you know, smash these like ball bearing stipples, uh, stickers under my nipples. I got the second um, uh, one done. It, they were in fact shadows of my nipples and not a problem in my lungs. But I think that's got to be the title of my of my next memoir. Shadows of my nipples. Right? I literally was going to say this is this is clearly a book or an essay waiting to be written. The shadows. <laughs> there's oh, yeah. a line. There's a line on RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't even remember which queen comes out, and she says the the nipples are the eyes of the face. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> so my eyes really are down here. Okay. I so get stupid. It. Uh, okay. Okay. Justin. Okay, gender so I gender <laughs> pronouns. Where do we know you from? <laughs> and uh, and tell us about your favorite sandwich. You bet. Uh, my name is Justin Hall, uh, pronouns he, him, his. Uh, I'm the chair of the MFA in comics program at California College of the Arts. Um, probably best known for the, in the queer comics world, I, I edited a book uh, called No Straight Lines, Four Decades of Queer Comics, um, which I was then produced as a, a feature-length documentary film, um, uh, which sort of uh, chronicles uh, five of the pioneers of queer comic books. And um, I've done other comics as well. I'm a cartoonist, um, Theater of Terror, Hard to Swallow, which was my gay erotic um, book with Dave Davenport, um, uh, True Travel Tales. I did a bunch of stuff about traveling. Um, so yeah, I've, uh, Justin Hall Awesome Comics is my is my website, so you can find stuff there. Um, and I'm an academic, as I said. So I, I teach history of comics and have written, you know, um, uh, various academic essays around comics form stuff. My favorite sandwich is a Reuben. I, I'm sort of a, I love a good Reuben. You know, that's sort of, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood eating Jewish deli food. And that I always sort of look for a Reuben wherever I go. And I've encountered very disappointing ones, but also the joys of discovering a, a beautiful Reuben, you know, make, makes my heart sing. Uh, Justin had a booth at FlameCon where a lot of his students and or former students who have now put out books were being represented. And we had a lovely conversation, but after I left and, and uh, we had exchanged information, Justin, I realized how many people we know in common and uh, how well respected you are in this kind of queer comics community. It's uh, it's it's really cool to have you on the show today, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I appreciate that. And then finally, uh, my second to last night at FlameCon, I was hanging out in the bar in my Seth Martell designed Polaris shirt and Ms. Anya Prosser came over and said, I love your shirt. And I said, I like your face. And we've been friends ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Anya, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Um, the other, I was wearing a green wig at the at the moment, so it you know had to comment on the Polaris shirt. Yes, um, and today you have purple hair, a la Betsy Braddock. <laughs> yeah, this is this is my natural color. <laughs> uh, so, same questions: gender pronouns, where we might know you from, and then uh, your favorite sandwich. So, my pronouns are she, um, she, her. I, you're not going to know me. Um, well. Chad, you do. But <laughs> <laughs> I am a doc student of education at Teachers College, and my focus is using comics in the classroom, superhero comics in the classroom, to address uh, a lot of mental health. So I've been focusing quite a bit on Scarlet Witch, and then I'm going to delve into a whole bunch of magic work, which I'm really excited about. Um, 
but I'm a few years away from my dissertation, um, therefore not established in the world of academia yet, but building that world. Um, and then I was thinking about the sandwich. Um, I There's not a specific sandwich that was the best or certainly the worst, but I really love sandwiches. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a specific sandwich experience um, which was in 2010. It was late September. I have a weird memory. Um, and this friend of mine who I knew from, uh, from elementary school through high school, I'd run into her over the summer and she's like, let's get lunch. What do you want? And I said, let's go for sandwiches. And I was dreading this because I didn't really want to reconnect with her. And we had we went to this place called Masterpiece, I think it was Masterpiece Deli in Denver. And whatever sandwich I had was delicious, but we reconnected and just, it was one of the most magical experiences of my life. So that was, that is the best sandwich I've had. Delicious. For the context for our listeners, if you've read X Factor Minus One, there is a spot where Alex is expected to eat a sardine and mayonnaise sandwich. <laughs> we'll briefly touch on that, but that was the the uh, <laughs> the primer for our question today. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You know me from this podcast. Best sandwich I ever had, I think, was before I was a vegetarian, which has been for the last several years. But there was this little place in North Idaho called the Yellow House that served like a Thanksgiving sandwich. And it was like turkey and stuffing and cranberries and gravy all and it was like it would drip in your lap and it was amazing <laughs> but i wouldn't eat it now i think the worst sandwich i've ever had uh, in a former lifetime i was a mormon missionary for two years and when you are a mormon missionary knocking doors you have like a very limited food budget and people will have you over and serve you meals all the time and you don't often get to control what those meals are. And I was served some gnarly sandwiches from time to time. Like people would take old things from their fridge. It'd be like dry turkey and like beets with like some sort of weird aioli on top. And you're like, what am I eating right now? <laughs> I had a number of really awful sandwiches in that two year period of my life. Uh, so the clear theme for all of us today is education. I am a former college professor. I have a master's degree. Uh, as I got to know each of you a little bit and heard about some of the stuff you're doing, I am always thrilled when I see people taking the things they are nerdy and passionate about and turning it into academia or career. Uh, I want to start by asking uh, Michael a question, but I want to I want to shout out quickly. I have a friend uh, named uh, Michael Anderson, excuse me, Michael Ferguson, his husband is Seth Anderson, who is currently teaching at Harvard. When he was here in Utah, he did a study about uh, mapping out people's religiosity in their brains. They would do brain scans while people were engaging in things like scripture study or prayer to see what parts of the brain lit up. And he wrote this fascinating article about it. And I am not a, I'm, I'm a therapist, but I'm not a big brain guy. And I'm super fascinated by people who look at the brain and see this as a research opportunity. Uh, Michael, tell us a little bit about the sociology study you are doing uh, as relates to fandom and the brain. I think it's so crazy cool. So it has nothing to do with the brain, I'm sad to say. Oh, I misunderstood it. Please proceed. <laughs> That's okay. I, I'm definitely coming at it more from a culture perspective and from the, the literature that compares 
fandoms to religion. So there is certainly that connection, but um, I don't dabble in the brain. But what I'm doing in this project is trying to gather systematic information from fans of Comic-Con culture is what it's come to be called. So these are interests that you see at Comic-Cons that are now very popular. We're talking comic books, as well as gaming, anime, cosplay, science fiction, fantasy. And I have a 26 question survey that I distribute at Comic-Cons. And I also do follow-up in-depth interviews. And the central question that I'm trying to explore is why do people become devoted fans of these things, whatever they are? And one of the central explanations, as I mentioned, was this connection between fandom and religion. And so for decades, people have compared fandoms and arguing that they function as a kind of religion. I think this is a, a fascinating comparison, but as I've argued, I think it has some problems, both conceptually and in terms of lack of data. And so those, those are the two main entry points for me as a social scientist is to reconceptualize this connection and to gather systematic data, which there is very little in this area. So ultimately, I argue that it's it's more accurate to view fandoms and devotion as sacred rather than religious. And so I delineate particular dimensions of the sacred, which then I systematically explore through the survey and the interviews. That's the long and the short of it. How do you define fandom in this context? And and Justin and Andy, if you have any questions or comments, I'm asking these questions. Feel free to jump in anytime. Yeah, so fandoms, I should have had that, that definition in front of me. A fandom, it's both a community, but it's also an interest. So there is, there is a, a Star Wars fandom, which applies to both the community of people that are interested in Star Wars, but it also refers to Star Wars itself, the, the thing that, that people are, are interested in. So I think those are the two main components. Uh, it almost it almost seems to have a cultural connotation uh, as well. I'm thinking about the energy that exists in con spaces or at comic stores and how that's different from mainstream society. And as we form these kind of communities online, it's an interesting thing to to consider what's being created in those spaces. Uh, what are you finding in your research so far, if you're able to share, or do you have any kind of hypotheses that we're moving in toward that direction? Yeah, so one of my main hypotheses is, which is not unidirectional, it's more bidirectional, that the more that people are devoted to their fandoms, the more they would experience it as sacred. You could also say that reverse, the more they experience it as sacred, the more they are devoted to it. And so I have questions that can measure devotion as well as measure different dimensions of the sacred. But I do have some highlights. I won't get into too much of it. I have a lot of data, which I'm trying to to weed through and analyze and summarize. But in terms of the, the demographics, I've, I have data on just over 500 respondents now. They are highly educated. 78% of respondents have at least two years of college or more, and 33% have graduate degrees. So that was an interesting finding about those that go to Comic-Cons. One of my first questions, I ask people to rank their top five interests and I list all those interests that are commonly associated with Comic-Con culture. The one that is ranked number one the most is science fiction, which is interesting, followed by comics, gaming, and superheroes at number four. 
one of my favorite questions is asking respondents if they learn any particular values or moral lessons from their fandom. And this is one of those questions that taps into aspects of the sacred that we often learn morality, we learn values from things that are sacred to us. And I measure answers along a Likert scale on this. So you can strongly disagree, disagree. You can be neutral, agree, or strongly agree. 64% of respondents agree or strongly agree that they have learned values or moral lessons from their fandom. But I have a follow-up question where I ask them to write down what specific values or moral lessons have you learned? And these are the most interesting questions. When you ask people to articulate what it is they've gotten from their fandoms. Yeah. I'm I'm going through these answers now and I'm coding them with a resource assistant, but over 25% um, of those answers have to do with values or moral lessons related to diversity, tolerance, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. This really fascinated me that that many people consistently said it was those kinds of moral lessons and values that they have learned from their fandom. And then one more thing I'll add, one of my last questions in the interviews, when we talk about the sacred, there's also its opposite in a way, which is the profane, um, things that could be sacrilegious. So I ask people, is there anything that you consider inappropriate or out of bounds when it comes to your fan interests and fan communities? And almost without fail, it's aspects of toxic fandom. It's racism, sexism, homophobia, gatekeeping, a lack of boundaries between fans and creators. It comes up over and over and over again. So those I'm, I'm, are curious, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, because so much of fandom, I mean, that those presences are very, you know, very deep and profound in, in fandom. So are, do you feel like you're just not getting um, to the uh, uh, respondents to your to your uh, um, questionnaires uh, who, who can, you know, talk to that experience, who, who are actually... Uh, trolling people and doing this this sort of damage online, or is it just that they they wouldn't you know say that in a in a questionnaire? It's a fair question. Um, you know, it's anonymous, so pe- people can can say what they want for sure. Are people less likely to say those kinds of things when I'm interviewing? I'm sure. <laughs> but one thing I'm curious about, since people bring it up over and over again, I wonder if you know the kind of toxic fandom we see online is merely just the loudest. Yeah. You know, how how much of a majority view is it? Mm-hmm. Or is it maybe minority, but it just, it's so profane that it gets the most press. Yeah, I, I would imagine that would be a huge part of it. I also, another question is how much you um, might engage with the sort of hist- historical and cultural context of the fandom. Like, I think, you know, when I teach about uh, emergence of fandom, not that I'm an expert in any way that you are, but uh, around comics, <clears throat> I, I trace it back to the, you know, science fiction magazine with, you know, Hugo Gernsback. And when um, they started, uh, fans could write in with their own um, uh, addresses uh, and then create um, networks that would extend past the magazine so they could write to each other. Right. And that was, it was sort of a technological move, you know, where- And, and, and just as a, as a side note there, letters pages used to run people's full addresses in the backs of the yeah. books. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's kind of intense when you think about it now. <laughs> yeah, right. It, that sort of doesn't make any sense now, but that's how, you know. So obviously like, you know, fandoms developed through through sort of cultural context and technological context. Um, and, and also it sounds like you're doing most of your research in the United States, right? This is not stuff that would happen in, and it would be, I'm sure, different in Japan or in France or, yeah. 
Absolutely. So yeah, to your second question, boy, I would love to have the money to be able to travel internationally and do these surveys somewhere else. Um, You would need people that translate the surveys and translate them back. I would need a ton of money and, you know, get my university to grant me leave for a couple of years. So that that's not going to happen. So this will be data that applies to the U.S., unfortunately. Um, but that's the best well, I can. A, that's an important deep dive, right? I mean, we need to know what's happening in the U.S. And I, I don't mean that as a criticism. I just like, yeah, 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 for sure. And to your first question, I'm I'm not doing any histories of particular phantoms per se, but when I do the interviews, people can certainly discuss that. So I ask people how they got into what they're into, and so people can go all the way back to their first memories or it can be something more recent. So it's more the individual stories um, that I'm exploring here. I think it's fascinating. When I was in uh, graduate school, we took a research class. And one of the first things the teacher taught was this uh, this, uh, uh, study she had been a part of in her own graduate school, where they were uh, examining the correlations between lesbians and alcohol. And uh, they, they did this study and then determined that lesbians had a 90% chance of becoming alcoholic. And then the professor sat them down and really like asked them like, where did you get all of your data? And they're like, oh, we went down to the local lesbian bar and we interviewed all of the women we met there. So these were all w- women who were drinking actively at a bar and that was their sample for their study. <laughs> so I've, that always stands out to me because where you're getting your data matters, how it's being solicited, who you're gathering it from. The concept of all of this is fascinating, Michael, as you're talking through this the idea even of X-Men fans or even queer X-Men fans and how we interpret this data and our relationship with the things that we're passionate about in these spaces. Uh, what are your plans for uh, the end of this research? Do you plan to publish? Is there kind of an end date in mind? Yes, sometime before I retire would be my end date. <laughs> you, know, you know how this kind of research goes. I I would love to write a book and I would love to write one that's accessible to the public. I think my dream would be to have a table at a con and to be pushing this book. Um, That's the ultimate goal. Um, Right now, it's funny that you mentioned representative samples because that's really what I'm trying to do is make sure that I have a wide swath of fans. And since we don't have prior data, we don't really know what the population of the fandom world looks like, but you know, I would guess it probably looks a lot like the demographics of the United States. So that's why I was at FlameCon. Uh, I'm gonna be at BlurredCon uh, next summer um, and really try to get to those spaces that are underrepresented. That's more the immediate goal you, and making sure I have a good representative sample. There, um, I mean, I'm thinking also about fandoms that don't even sort of come out to cons. Like um, uh, Matt, uh, Margaret Galvan's been doing really great work on, um, uh, uh, queer women, uh, co- comics, uh, comics fans and creators, queer women in the, especially in the 90s and 80s. And, you know, this, this dovetails with a lot of the stuff that I was doing with No Straight Lines, where there was, you know, people like Diane DeMassa creating uh, Hadi Paisan, homicidal lesbian terrorist, as this, like, you know, wild uh, underground, you know, mini comic that would never be sold in a comic book store or in a, in a comic book convention, but then, you know, might show up in a, in a feminist, you know, radical feminist or, or queer bookstore back then, or just, you know, was distributed um, through mail order and through the the, the punk zine scene. Um, and that was, you know, there was an incredible fan base around that kind of work that it was incredibly marginalized. And, 
and then create a community um, among this among you know queer punks and people who are sort of sort of represented the angry queer it at the moment. A lot of stuff around HIV as well. Um, and it's hard to get at those fandoms unless you you have specific you know entry points. Um, it is. We'll have to talk and 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 maybe I'll I'll pick your brain about that. It's it's a little daunting when you think about you know these people might be on the internet somewhere, but where do you go on the internet to find people? That's not necessarily helpful either. Well, yeah. even uh, even the idea of fandom in a post-COVID world, as as opposed to a pre-COVID world, it's it's a fascinating thing to to start to consider. And of course, you can't narrow it down so much that it, <laughs> it affects your sample. But it's a really interesting thing, Michael. I mean, I'm super excited to see where this goes. Uh, Anya, I have a quick palate cleansing question for you. Uh, first of all, I was not calling you an alcoholic. If you are lesbian, <laughs> I want to be very clear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you uh, you do have to answer this question, as challenging it may be. But fuck, Mary kill, magic, Polaris, the Scarlet Witch. Oh, I'm giving. Uh, having gotten to know Anya, I'm giving her a very difficult Sophie's choice of a question. <laughs> these are these are my girls. Uh, these are my girls. My and this like, is being my Instagram is. I'm sorry, what? But I was just saying this is being recorded, so this come back could come back to haunt you. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you know, knowing that this is an X Men podcast, that <laughs> you get to answer from your heart. Oh. Wow. Okay. Fuck magic. Um, Fair. Because who doesn't want to, right? Like, yeah. Um, oh, I don't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm gonna go with. Oh, I'm so sorry. Like she's looking at me as I say this, but I think I'm gonna kill Polaris and Mary Scarlet Witch, cause you know that gay chaos, that gay chaos. That was impossible. There was no right or wrong answer. Uh, <laughs> no, but I like right now have David Baldion's Polaris staring me down. <laughs> But I am here to put you through it, my friend. You know you're gonna need a lot. Of, you're gonna need a lot of couples counseling with with your marriage. I'm just you know, warning you now. But. but 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 I will say that now that we know that Yaya Abdul Mateen is going to be Wonder Man, like maybe open marriage. Who who knows what's possible? <laughs> um, uh, shifting over to Justin for a few minutes. Uh, Justin, I'm going to ask you kind of a broad-based question. I would love to hear a little bit uh, about your journey from a queer fan into a queer professional, if you will. Uh, and then kind of shifting into education as, as the con kind of concluder there. You have a pretty impressive resume, my friend. Uh, thank you. I... I um... Uh, my mom um, uh, recently uh, said to me, she was like, I, "Like, I can't believe you wound up with a career out of the weird, like, geeky, like, geeky queer comic shit that you you're always obsessed with as a kid." So yeah, it, it, there's a sort of my inner ten year old's pretty happy. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of like, I have a, a, lots of demons, you know, with a lot of a lot of this stuff. So, um, but um, I guess my um, you know, I've always been obsessed with comics. It's how I, you know, how I learned to read and I never got over it. Right. So in the form just sort of makes sense for me as one that combines visual storytelling and, and verbal. Um, uh, I'm a storyteller for, first and foremost, and it, it was just the perfect medium for me um, with those aspects. So I've, I never had it. Like I was one of those 
folks who always knew what he wanted to do from the very beginning, uh, which was to be involved in comics and make comics. Um, it took me a while to get there. I spent my 20s like, you know, uh, traveling a lot with a backpack and doing a lot of drugs um, and, uh, you know, gathering experiences for comics. I, you know, um, it's interesting now I'm, I'm sort of jealous of my own students because they get to launch into their careers in a way that I it was felt impossible to me. I came out of school and had no idea how to how to get talk to a publisher or, or get an agent or um, and enter into the creative life at all. There was just no obvious, you know, mechanism to do it on uh, information where now, you know, my students can get that through school and also put stuff up on Instagram and immediately have a sort of community of people that will, they can connect with. I made my first comic book after uh, traveling. I was in Israel and ran into the Dead Sea Scroll, uh, Dead Sea Scroll, uh, uh, scro Dead Sea Scrolls um, in their museum outside of Jerusalem and uh, did a comic about it, sort of in a vacuum, didn't know what I was doing, had no comics friends. And I got the Zarek Foundation Award, which was the um, uh, uh, put forward by the one of the Teenage Ninja Turtle guys and uh, to self-publish. And I did that. And it was this sort of strange book about a, you know, uh, a gay escape slave of the Roman Empire who then comes in from, he's trying to get back to his home in West Africa and comes into the, the Dead Sea Scroll cult and ends up saving the word from the Roman invaders, um, mm. even though he's an illiterate slave. Um, and, you know, yeah, it was, it's, I mean, you know, I'm proud of it as a first book, but it's, it's, it's pretty terrible, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, come on. um, but then, you know, slowly just sort of, you know, developed my skills. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these, I'm a sort of a slow growth creator. Like I sort of steadily got better. Uh, it took me a long time. I was talking to Alison Bechdel about this, where she was like, if I started now, I don't know if I would, would have made it because, you know, Allison, you know, is one of the greatest cartoonists on the planet now, but she, it took her, you know, decades to really get her voice established and to figure out what she was doing and do it well. And that sort of slow growth, and as much as how wonderful it is for creators now to be able to immediately access community and sort of jump into the world of making comics, it's, um, uh, you're sort of expected to be really good right, right away. And that's great for creators who can kind of come out of the, the gate just swinging with a great, you know, graphic novel or something, but harder for those of us that need a little bit more time to develop our skills. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was sort of a slow and steady progress through getting involved in the comics world. And then um, I come from a family of academics. And so uh, when uh, an academic job sort of landed on my lap, I happened to be at that that stage where there were so few cr uh, cartoonists that had any um, degrees um, to teach and sort of any uh, skills in teaching that um, I was able to land position and sort of work my way up through there. Um, it's going to be interesting. You know, it's interesting to see comic studies develop and evolve um, because now they're, they will also require more, more degrees and more, you know, professionalism, um, which is wonderful as well. But um, I hope that comics never loses the sort of scrappy DIY uh, aspect to it that, that really has always engaged me. What do you teach currently? Um, so I'm the chair of, the, of this program, MFA in comics. Um, so I'm doing some administrative stuff around that now, but I'm also mentoring one-on-one, -on -one, um, doing one-on-one -on -one mentoring with, with a bunch of the incoming cohort. And then um, I teach the history and cultural context of, of comics for the in, incoming cohort as well. Incredible. Uh, you also, I, also oh, sorry, I was going to say, I also sometimes I've taught in other schools. So there's a Danish school. So speaking of, of Michael's experiences with uh, with Scandinavian um, uh, caviar, um, uh, I, 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 I for many years I've taught at this um, the animation workshop in Denmark, which has a big com comic school attached to it. 
You also are, are well known for No Straight Lines, of course, and Hard to Swallow. That mixture of gay erotica into comic book form on a mainstream level is fascinating to me. I'd love to hear a little bit of your thoughts there. Oh, I, I find it's interesting. I, I, I find erotica a really interesting um, uh, uh, genre to, to work with in comics. I think comics can do things with erotica that's really unique. Um, I also have worked in the adult uh, film industry in the past and so sort of saw you know, adult content or raw content being produced in different ways. And comics can, you know, are, they're more interactive, right? Like you actually engage the gutter, the space between the panels. You want the the reader to uh, inject, so to speak, their erotic imagination into the space. Sure. Where that's not true with film, right? You're not encouraged to, you know, imagine what happens between the one cut and another um, within a film. You know, which and what actually happens is the actors have to get up and drink some apple juice to get their blood sugar back up, and then they move the lights under so they can get the proper shot under the balls or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, in comics, you're you know, if you have a you know someone like a, a master cart, uh, erotic cartoonist like Gengoro Tagane, for example, and you'll see one of his illustrations, you know, one panel next to another panel, and you're encouraged to sort of imagine how the characters got from one position to another, right? And that's you're engaging with that, you're sort of participating in the and the erotic construction. Um, and that's wonderful, you know, and you also have other advantages, obviously the illustrative nature of the medium where you can, you have an unlimited CGI budget, right? You, you can have centaurs doing whatever they want, right? Without it, without it seeming a little weird in live action. Um, and then also you have a sort of um, illustrative capacity to, to uh, create different kinds of angles. So, so for example, again, Tagame is a good example. He, um, he'll have a shot of the bottom, for example, in a fucking scene, and he'll just remove the top completely. So you see the bottom body entirely as he's getting fucked, and um, in a way that would be impossible with a, an actual camera. Sure. Um, or you see a sort of, you know, the insertion of a penis into an anus, and you see a sort of cross section of that, which would be, again, impossible without some very invasive surgery uh, in a live action. So he, he's using the comics, the illustrative nature of the comics medium to his benefit to create sort of not only sort of fantastical characters and creatures, but also fantastical um, shots and perspectives. The idea of uh, literary expression and storytelling techniques and camera angles as a storytelling method, and then to use the, what you're learning in the industry and bringing that back into comic books itself yeah. as a visual presentation is fascinating. My brain is like going crazy with all this content so far. I love it. I, I, uh, one of the, I would also say that there's... Um, um, you know, I, I think there's a really important political and, and social, cultural um, um, uh, import to this, right? We have to, you know, I, I come in with a big stack of porn comics for my students every semester and sort of slam it on the table. I'm like, you all should be making pornography at some point in your career because, you know, sex and sexuality and desire is one of the most, you know, great profundities of the human existence, right? It's up there with birth and death, and we should be making great art about it. And the problem is, you know, that there's a lot of bad art about sex out there. And if you create, you know, especially if you're a queer person, a woman, person of color, whoever you are, you should, you know, if you can make, uh, you know, authentic stories about sex and desire from your perspective, the world will, you know, you'll find a following and you'll make the world a better place. One of the questions I get, I, I do a lot of uh, speaking about 
queer theory and sociology and a lot of it's to straight people and one of the questions i'll get from straight people a lot on these types of topics is why does queer culture get so frequently mixed in with the expression of sex or freedom uh, you think of pride celebrations and what they see are the people celebrating bodies and skimpy clothing right and there, there's an interesting conversation about for straight people, sex has never been forbidden. It's a part of culture constantly worked in from the beginning. But for gay people, it's something that has had to be discovered because it's never discussed. And the celebration of that as an art form is always fascinating. That's a much longer conversation. But yeah. I, I think it's so cool to see it being celebrated in particular places where yeah. appropriate, obviously. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, the, I'm working on a, uh, the book I'm working on right now for Abrams is a memoir that's mixed with queer San Francisco history. And one of the things I want to do is sort of, um, uh, I, there's a sort of um, second coming out almost where, where I feel like there's a lot of code switching that happens with, especially with, you know, my particular world of gay men within an urban context in San Francisco and other places where, you know, even very well-meaning allies have no idea actually what our lives are actually com composed of. And so I want to show that and, as, you know, try to create a non-judgmental space in which you can see that and hopefully inspire it. With other people as well, I believe that sexuality is something that should be should be more free for everybody um, and accessible. So, you know, I want to talk openly about you know because queers have been outside of the dominant paradigm, have been forced out of the paradigm for so long. We have come up with alternative structures. There's a lot of like open relationships and polyamory and um, you know different kinds of secondary relationships, daddy boy and um, uh, alpha pup and stuff like that um, that are being explored and and should be should be, you know, avail those sort of paradigms should be available for everybody. Yeah, a huge part of my therapy business, and I'm not, I'm not advertising my therapy business here, is working with people in uh, kink or poly culture uh, who come in for individual or relationship counseling with a safe affirmative therapist. So this yeah. is a big part of my professional life at the same time, which is why I'm super fascinated by it. Uh, and this is for all of us, but I think uh, what we kind of started with today is Anytime we're able to take the things that we're passionate or nerdy about and mix them into something that we're getting uh, paid to do or that we get to promote, I'm mixing therapy and X-Men fandom and storytelling into this weird little podcast world that I've created. It makes me so happy. And one of my uh, things is bringing people together who have different passions but are all passionate uh, about it. Let me ask you each this question. Uh, we'll go in the order of Anya, uh, uh, Michael, and then Justin. What's your relationship with the X-Men as a fan? That's a, 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 a small but big question. So I'm... The, I mean, I'm sure that everybody thinks of themselves as the weird one in in fandoms, but um, I'm the weird one who didn't get into comics until my 20s. Um, and so I I got into X-Men straight right away. Um, and I, but I feel like I'm constantly catching up. Um it's now become obviously a huge component of my life since it's the center of my doctoral studies. <laughs> but um, but I constantly feel like I'm, I, a friend of mine told me that I know more about the X-Men than anyone he knows. And I deal with that like imposter syndrome component where I was talking to my therapist about this and she's like, but that is a fact. Like if you can't deny that, there are people who know more than you do, but in Tim's world, you know the most. Um, and so I, I, I'm not sure that I'm answering your question in the way you wanted, Chad. But no, no, um, no, this is perfect. But 
I feel like I'm constantly catching up. And I say that as I look around my apartment and it is fully decorated with Marvel, primarily X-Men stuff. I uh, I wrote my senior thesis on the X-Men and I used to write for the Marvel handbooks. But as I'm doing this podcast and doing this deep analysis of issues and getting to know creators, I'm realizing how little I've actually always known, even though it's always been a huge part of my life. I get imposter syndrome sometimes too, my friend. <laughs> Uh, let's go to Michael next. Same question. What's your relationship with the X-Men as a fan? So I feel the same way. Uh, I do not feel like a particular expert about the X-Men. I don't know how how long to make this story. I suppose I'll just answer it directly. I I really got into comic books in the 1980s. And I remember when comic book stores opened, I had mine in downtown Palo Alto. I grew up in the South Bay, by the way, Justin. Um and some of my favorite comics um, from that era, Batman Year One, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and X-Men Days of Future Past, one of my favorite stories of all time. And so I, I was anticipating a, a question about favorite X-Men character. And I think it depends on how old you are, you know, what your favorite character is and who really resonates with you. And I think at the time in, in the 80s, I thought the New Mutants were really cool. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned magic because that's the character I wrote down. Um, she's like a wilder Dr. Strange. Um, <laughs> that a very, very cool character. Sometimes you just like a character because they have a crazy skill set, you know, especially when you're when you're younger. Um, I think a lot of us are more familiar with the X-Men after the movies. Um, but I think to answer your question directly, probably not until the 80s. Fantastic. Thank you. And then Justin. Yeah, uh, Michael, I would say that that magic miniseries, that first miniseries, still sort of like throbs in my brain, you know, where she, as a little child getting stuck in this hell dimension and being brought up by the older storm, sort of uh, that, that sort of will always be, yeah, really you know, fundamental. God, God, it's good. Yes. So good. So good. Um, I, it's funny because I think I have the, uh, the opposite imposter syndrome from you guys because I, you know, was a, definitely an X Men fan when I was a, when I was a kid. I was actually going back into the old um, uh, into the comic book stores and finding the old issues uh, from the '60s, the original uh, run, and trying to be really completist about it. Um, but I feel like I haven't kept up in the way that you all are sort of diving deep into the stuff into the lore now. So um, I I have a sort of the opposite. I I, I kind of grew up with with that you know in that sort of you know geeky fandom and where it really resonated with me uh, when I was younger. And then I've I don't have as much of the sort of completest um, knowledge now. So I'm going to follow you, follow your all lead with this. And I really also, it's it's wonderful to, to, you know, people coming into this stuff a little bit later than have, I think, a different perspective on it and are looking at it with more critical eyes in a lot of ways. So that's exciting. I adore, again, assembling strangers and getting to do these analysis on these books together. We're going to learn a lot from each other as we do this. Uh, just to share my own journey, my listeners know this already, but I first picked up X-Men when I was a very young teen and things were not good at home. And I was living in a small town. I would pick up the, the X-Men comics from the grocery store, Spinner Rack, and uh, take them home. And they became my escape. They became my religion, along with some other fiction in a lot of ways. Eventually, it expanded into the whole Marvel Universe. By the time I graduated high school, I had tens of thousands of books, very carefully maintained in my, uh, my little archive bedroom at home. Uh, and then it's something I pursued professionally uh, as an adult in my own way. So it's it's always been a very deep and abiding love for me. 
Uh, and I now to get to, get to share that with my own children as I'm doing this work. Uh, so when I'm interviewing people that I've uh, loved for years on this podcast and listeners, when you hear they're like, oh my God, I'm talking to Ian Churchill or Anne Nascenti, like those are very real feelings because these are people who uh, unbeknownst to them guided me through some very tough times in my life. Uh, so uh, just as a quick recap, we've gone sandwiches, caviar, sociology representative samples, lesbian alcoholics, erotica, X-Men. There's a, a quick recap for everybody. <laughs> Don't forget that I killed Polaris. Oh, yes. And Polaris's corpse uh, <laughs> as we move on to our discussion about Havoc. Now, we've given Havoc a lot of love and attention on our podcast recently. Uh, just a couple of episodes before this one was the Havoc trial. I feel like after that, I have a good grasp on this character and we get to delve into his trauma background today, which is very sad, actually. Uh, so we've been laughing about having some, but today will be kind of a more sobering conversation. Uh, laughter is still uh, encouraged. Today, we're analyzing X Factor minus one, which is called A Summer's Tale. It's from July 1997. Howard Mackey is the writer with Jeff Matsuda on pencils. Art Thibbert is the inker. Glynis Oliver is the colorist. Uh, Richard Starkings of Comicraft is, is on letters. And uh, Kelly Corvace is the editor. Now, Howard Mackey is a well-known name in the industry He's done a lot of X-Men stuff. He wrote the whole series Mutant X, which featured the character Havoc. He also wrote X-Factor from issues 115 through 149. So he basically closed out that first volume of the book. He wrote the uh, Gambit and Rogue and Logan books. Uh, so this is a guy that's done a lot of X-Men work over the years. He certainly has a good grasp on Havoc uh, as someone who wrote him a lot through the 90s. And he gave us the Havoc Brotherhood stories, the Havoc Mutant X stories, and then uh, Chuck Austin picked him up from there. And we talked about him <laughs> in my recent interview with Chuck Austin. Uh, Jeff Matsuda is uh, a really talented artist uh, that has done some isolated X-Men work over the years. His pencils are very characteristic. He's a well-known as a character designer and an animator. Uh, look up more of his work if you're interesting. He's got a beautiful art style that's kind of unlike anything we've covered on this podcast so far. So as we're jumping in, we get a cover of a giant, it says flashback across the top, giant Mr. Sinister with open hands holding a very young, maybe 10 or 11 year old Alex Summers. The text box says, meet Alex Summers, the boy whose life is wreaked with havoc. Uh, across the bottom. He's the mysterious shadow behind every corner. He's the one mutant everyone fears. Get ready to tremble at the sight of Mr. Sinister. Uh, we're going to have some Mr. Sinister conversation. We've talked about him on the podcast plenty, but this is his first official appearance in a book that we've covered on this show. So it is a whole new realm of X-Men villainy as we talk. As we jump in, let me hear from our guests. What are some of your thoughts on this cover? Do you like? Do you dislike? I did have some notes about sort of Jeff Matsua's art style. You, you mentioned it's very unique. It strikes me as very angular yeah. in the line work and in some of the angles of the panels as well. I also find it sort of playful and cartoony, the oversized feet and hands and eyes. Uh, it's a fairly menacing cover of Mr. Sinister here. I wouldn't want to be in his hand like that. It's scary. Mr. Sinister's face is all very harsh angles, uh, very Joker-like somehow. Yeah, I agree with you. What's fascinating to me about it is how Alex is completely lost in it. And I mean, when you sent me, when you sent me the copy of this, I wouldn't have thought it was a Havoc comic just from looking at the cover. It's 
so sinister base and this tiny bit of sunshine is completely overwhelmed by the darkness and the foreboding nature of Essex. Yeah, the composition here is definitely, it's all about sinister and not really about havoc. And so we, and we, we're used to seeing havoc as this sort of, you know, powerful and um, oftentimes sort of dangerous presence. And he is in fact the the naive, the innocent here that's being swallowed up by, by the evil. Um, and I, I agree with this, this idea of Matsuo's style is, um, is, is very unique. Um, and it, it sort of, um, uh, it, 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 there's a lot of references to Umberto Ramos and Chris Bacalo, um have similar some similarities in styles, but he really pushes the um, the cartooniness, especially around the faces. I I sometimes get a little bit um, uh, I I don't like some of the sort of extreme you know use of manga eyes like too much. It and it, it, it walks a sort of um, uh, line between camp, uh, but then it can also be quite menacing. That that sort of cartooniness can can create even more menace. And um, it was interesting you brought up the Joker. I think that's something that people use a lot with the Joker, right? Because he's both camp and terrifying. Yeah. Um, that's what, you know, trying to, he's bringing out here with Sinister and then Sinister sort of minions or, you know, stand-ins throughout the issue. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting cover. It's definitely more about Sinister than Havoc, even though I think the issue itself is really about Havoc's journey as, as, uh, um, as, as an innocent and watching that innocence get crushed, basically. When I go to villains like Mr. Sinister or Arcade, the first place my brain goes is uh, that old show Cabaret, like Joel Gray's character comes out with a welcome, ladies and gentlemen, as he's getting ready to stab you with one hand and entertain you with the other. There's an element of uh, that, that kind of camp and showmanship. Uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time on Sinister today, but just as a recap for people who've kind of followed the comics with us as we go, Mr. Sinister's real name is Nathaniel Essex. He has his origins in kind of Darwinian London, where he's a scientist who did some unethical things and basically gets cursed by apocalypse to live a very long life. We're going to oversimplify. We'll get it more into his origins another time. At this point in the 90s, Sinister has kind of taken on the form of the geneticist mad scientist. He's the Island of Dr. Moreau guy who wants to mix DNA together and kind of see what happens. He's changed over the years, particularly in the hands of Kieran Gillen. He's become something else. He's like obsessed with cloning and alternate timelines and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But at this point, we see him as the character who's playing the long game. We learn in his uh, in in the future that he was the guy who was behind the scenes in the orphanage where Cyclops was growing up. We learn in this issue he manipulated uh, Alex as well. He's playing the long game. He's seeing potential in people's genetics, and he's willing to kind of mess with them to see what happens with them decades later. So he's a frightening villain in that regard. Uh, any of you have comments or questions about Mister Sinister? Is he uh, is he a character you like? I'm curious about how what you all think about this sort of queer coding or not what, around him. But tell us what you mean. How is he queer coded? I 100% uh, agree. Yeah, I, and and again, forgive me for not knowing the lore better, but um, I mean, he definitely, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, Joel Gray and stuff. I mean, he's got that. There's that sort of uh, sinister effete thing uh, that that can happen. Um, uh, certainly, with uh, you see that in mad scientist tropes and his sort of. I mean, all superhero costumes have a camp edge to them, but his his uh, is particularly flamboyant, right? With the sort of the the shredded cape that kind of uh, flows behind him, um, and I think later on in other iterations, it's not so much in this issue, but in later iterations, his queer coding seems a little bit more 
uh, obvious the way he speaks and stuff. Um, yeah, it's almost it's almost as if he doesn't, but it's almost as if he gets up and paints his face every morning. It's bright white he, with red lips and a, and a diamond on the forehead. Uh, there's an element of him that is very showman, that is very chew the scenery, that is very, uh, I, I'm the comic relief, but also the really dark bad guy. It, we get that more in later era of comics. Uh, in this era, he he's still very camp and queer coded, but I think once Gillen gets his hands on him, and he becomes that kind of dandy uh, portrayal of him is where we get a lot of that. And Kieran Gillen's even give, given some interviews about how that's kind of how he portrays Sinister. He's the guy, the funniest guy in the room and the scariest guy in the room at the same time. Uh, any other comments on that? The queer coding of Mr. Sinister. I, I love Sinister. And I recognize that there is some problematic history there in terms of him being a eugenicist. Um, but my biggest familiarity with him is Krakoa era and him with his relationship with the Hellions. I, it's so much fun. It's such a delightful form of evil. I find the manipulative, very narcissistic, um, just caring about your own end goals at whatever the cost and never thinking that anyone can catch up with you. I watched X-Men uh, 97 for the first time this summer, and I was astonished to find that Sinister was not what who I wanted him to be. And Very I recognized good. that 97 is what made him so popular. That's why he was everywhere, because people got to know him from the cartoon. And he came across as, for me, not queer enough in the in the in the show. His voice was wrong. He I missed the the cape obsessed. <laughs> we first meet Mr. Sinister as kind of the guy that designed the clone of Jean Grey. He doesn't show up until the late 1980s. Claremont's been on the book for several years before we meet him. For many years, he was like top five X-Men villains. It's like Magneto, Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister, Mystique, right? Like we go down the list. But in the last six or seven years of comics, he's been in the forefront of many X-Men books. Uh, Hellions, Immortal X-Men, and others. We see more of Sinister now than we do Professor X and Magneto combined, frankly, as if, as you look at the Krakoan era. And there's a huge Sinister event on the horizon called Sins of Sinister. So uh, fascinating, fascinating ideas around him. Uh, Michael, did you have any comments on Sinister before we jump in? I yeah, I just think the fact that he's willing to play the long game makes him just as as evil as how he he might look. The way you were describing him reminded me of the the Emperor from Star Wars. How he'll wait decades, he'll wait as long as it takes to wait for his plans to come into being, and that's scary. That's menacing. He uh, it's very hard to defeat him soundly. He is not an easy villain to catch, and he's certainly not an easy one to contain or defeat. So as we jump in, we see this kind of familiar effect with the flashback comics consistently where they're starting in a scene in the modern day and then we flashback because annoying Stan Lee shows up on the page to distract you. We're getting an image here of Forge and Mystique who are part of the X-Factor team in Falls Edge. And there seems to be some romance budding between the two of them. I'm not going to delve into that today because it's not a big part of the plot. But then here comes Stan Lee, who in this issue is weirdly dressed 
in like backwards hat, kind of punk era sunglasses. He looks like he's going to go skateboard down the street and like paint your wall with some graffiti. Uh, he shows up a little differently in each of these flashback issues. He starts reviewing how many complicated characters there are. And he sees uh, Polaris, Shard and Wild Child, who are all part of the team here. And basically kind of interacts with them briefly. This is all out of continuity. He shoves them off the panel and then says, now let's talk about Havoc. I've got some surprises for you as we delve into his past. So when we finally jump into the story on page four, Stanley's kind of a cloud on the horizon. He says, it's a glorious summer's day, a perfect time for a 13-year-old Alex Summers to daydream about a life that might have been, a life in which he and his older brother Scott didn't have to parachute from the fiery plane that destroyed their happy family, or a life in which he and Scott were adopted together, where Scott could enjoy the loving attention of the Blanding family instead of remaining behind at the orphanage a life that was not meant to be. Now in the comics, we do not learn that Cyclops and Alex were pushed out of the plane, that whole origin story with their parents until Claremont comes on the book. When we go back to the 60s books, we know that Cyclops is from an orphanage and then and Havoc's first appearance, he basically says, oh, by the way, I never told anybody, but I have a little brother, Alex, here he is. And Alex is graduating from school on the same day right as he learns he's a mutant. That's kind of the context you need. We have learned later that Alex was adopted, but we've never seen that family until this issue. And they've never shown up again after that, to my knowledge. So as we're kind of jumping into the book a little bit here, there's a little bit of setup. And if anybody has any comments or questions, uh, let me know. But uh, Michael, will you take us through pages five through nine? Tell us what happens in this story. Absolutely. So on page five, we see some very bucolic surroundings. The Blanding family has a beautiful home, a picket fence. We see Alex sitting under a big shady tree, although he has a rather pensive look on his face. His mom comes out and calls him for lunch and says, I made your favorite lunch ever. This seems like a very lovely beginning, right? But we quickly learned that all the other family members are delusional. And his mom is actually, actually speaking to him as if Alex was their original son, Todd, who we learned later died tragically. His mom does not make Alex his favorite lunch. She, in fact, makes a sardine and mayonnaise sandwich, which you mentioned before. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> All the while, his dad is telling him he's got to hurry and rush off to practice. Uh, his mom realizes what she's doing, and she breaks down crying. Um, we move on to page six. Uh, the sister, Haley, takes Alex into Todd's trophy room. There we see Todd was a star football player. All the trophies, all the footballs. She explains how Todd dies and was the favorite son, that the parents actually worshiped Todd. But instead of consoling Alex, really what Haley does surprisingly is try to convince Alex to act more like Todd. So she says, when Todd died, I thought this family died too. But when the orphanage called up and said that they had a boy, you, it was like the family was reborn. Would it really be so tough to be a little bit more like Todd? And so this struck me as both nuts and sad. This is way too much pressure to put on a young person. And I felt bad for the daughter too. Is she not someone to be proud of? Did the family not worship Haley? Evidently not. It was all about Todd. Page seven, we see Alex kind of trying to get out of this madness. He tells dad, he tells the sister that he can't follow in Todd's footsteps. He doesn't even like football. He wants to play basketball. But once again, Haley says, quit whining and just try. How tough can it be? 
So basically, Alex is going to have to like it or lump it. And at the end of page seven, we see a shadowed Mr. Sinister watching over Alex, wondering, is it time to test your mettle? But not quite yet. We'll see. We'll see that towards the end of the, the issue here. Just to comment quickly on Haley for a second, just in these couple pages, she starts out by like consoling Alex and then manipulating him and then kind of flirting with him. She's like, I'll take you to a dance when you're older. Like, it's I'm like, who is this girl? <laughs> oh, I didn't take it as flirting at all. When when he says a dozen overly testosterone boneheads, I at like as a, as a woman, I took it as like, wait till you see what men are like at a dance. All right, all right. I thought it was like, just wait, you see what I have to go through. I'm like, this girl's got some layers. She's about to <laughs> somebody in the face. <laughs> She's also like a ninja. She's amazing and so yeah, I, strange. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael, go ahead. Absolutely. So yeah, let's get to that. So pages eight to nine, we see Alex at football practice. He's not very good. But nonetheless, dad responds, you know, delusionally again, I cycle saw quite a bit of Todd in the way you played today. Alex makes his way off the field and there are three bullies waiting for him underneath the bleachers. They tell him to quit the team or he might have an accident too, just like Todd. Just then Haley comes in all ninja and kicks some serious butt. And when I saw that, I thought Haley should be on the football team, not Alex. Um, <laughs> And then Can Alex, you imagine how great Todd had to be if she does, gets no credit for how amazing she is? Yeah, she, they've got to find a spot for her on, the, on this team. She's she's great. Um, but we do see Alex. He's kind of hunched over. He looks like he's getting nauseous as this is happening. And we don't understand quite what that is until towards the end of the issue. And then as, as they walk away, Haley and Alex, we see Mr. Sinister's cape again billowing behind them. So the setup of this, the tragic part for me, which is brilliant storytelling on Howard Mackey's part, one of the core components to Alex's character is he never measures up. Cyclops is always perfect and Alex can never do it. He always ends up following in Scott's footsteps. He, uh, he dates the woman Scott rejected. He leads the team that Cyclops left behind and he never quite measures up. And here we have this indelibly in his childhood. He's the one that got adopted, but he finds himself in the same situation with a, a dead kid who he can never measure up to, which is heartbreaking. Uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think this makes him more open to manipulation because he's not focused on what he needs or what he wants. He's always trying to please others and be loved. Yeah, we even, I mean, this comes out later, but like we even find out that this, you know, really seminal moment in, in, in his in his psychology is actually wiped from his memory. So it's sort of embedded inside of him um, in this, uh, you know, subconscious level that he's always, you know, trying to measure up to the older brother. Um, and he doesn't even realize that that's even part of his psyche and suppressed by Sinister. And Sinister's almost just showing up to be like, hmm, yeah, I bet your mutant powers are going to activate soon. Let's see what's happening. I want to I want to test you out here. Uh, he's kind of creepy hiding in the corners. Uh, Anya, take us through the next five pages. Tell us what happens next. So the one thing I wanted to say about Alex before I go into my section is that I have always loved Alex. And I think a lot of it is because I cannot like I'm one of Scott's biggest haters. Um, and thinking, listening to your trial of Alex episode, I've been thinking so much about just kind of how 
pathetic he is like how much I just want to nurture him like he pulls it on my little teacher heart and this is so part of that right he not only like was saved by his big brother but then goes on to just be a little brother for eternity um in the Blanding family the name Blanding like <laughs> okay um so anyway the <laughs> Haley and Alex return home Alex continues to feel sick. Um, Haley says that you've got to learn to stick up for yourself, kiddo. I'm not always going to be able to pull your butt out of the fire. Um, so they are going over this. He starts getting little circles around him, which I, I love that in terms of kind of foreshadowing of his powers. There's an intense close up on his face where it's covered in sweat and dripping it's so it's just pain and then the little shocks in his eyes look like he's crying but like his entire existence is crying um as much as i'm not a huge fan of the anime manga style i loved this use of it just in terms of really depicting his pain um and then Haley says that i know what you're going through which is always a strange thing to say to somebody who's been orphaned um then suggests it's puberty that, that he just needs to feel better um that night the next page his mother is consoling him saying how proud her his dad was of him um and she's sorry that she mixed him up with todd essentially and then she tells him to go to bed immediately the dad says can we talk um he finds out the dad has found out about the bullies and was very proud that Alex did not fight back. He says that um, another thing, Alex, you did the right thing today, not, not fighting. There is never a reason to resort to violence. It was a senseless act of violence that that took our Todd away from us. Again, everything is about Todd, um, including this is immediately after a moment where they're hugging and he says, that's my boy. The, this poor child, he really never wins. Um, so then rather than going to bed, he's dreaming out his window, um, feeling like he is pathetic. Um, and he starts remembering the incident in which he was pushed out of the plane by his parents, the parachute catching fire. Um, meanwhile, Sinister is hiding, or. It's not Sinister, is it? It's one of the bullies, sorry. One of Sinister's henchmen it's, is it's, hiding outside. It's Vince. Uh, Vince, who's like the psychopathic local bully. <laughs> this kid is nuts. <laughs> yeah, which, but the, then we do see that what appears to be Sinister is overlooking everything that's happening. And Vince is freaking out about his own issues. Apparently everybody has terrible parents. Um, I, he says, I ain't going to take a baiting from anybody's sisters on any account and is starting to plot something worse. Um, Sinister starts talking to Vince a little bit, um, introduces himself on the next page, wearing a coat that hides his magnificent cape, which saddens me. Um, Sinister has like a, a version of him. I think it's called like Michael Milbury, where he just, he looks very like human and like trench coaty. <laughs> yes. Although he does say my name is Mr. Essex on this page. So yes. um, 
what's interesting to me about this following page is that there's an up close on Vince's face. And if somebody on this page is named Sinister, Vince very much looks like it. It's He could not look more evil, and especially in terms of the angular nature in which he's drawn. Um, so Nathaniel Essex, Sinister, introduces himself. Um, he says that I find it best to deal directly with what troubles me. Don't you agree? And it starts pushing on for um, Vince to get into trouble. Stir the pot for me, Vincent. Let's see what genetic wonderments will arise from young Alex Summers. He says suddenly, I guess there's a clone of him. There's two going on right now, but. Um, I think he's just changed back into his real form after Vince walks away. I'm not sure though, because that middle panel, you can see that there's two. You can see the cloak. Oh, I think he's kind of meant to be walking toward the next panel as he shifts, but it very well could be a clone. Yeah. Minister has lots of clones of himself around. <laughs> Again, that reading between the, the reading in the gutters. Um, and then, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Then Alex is finally asleep. We return to his bedroom. He is woken up by being muzzled by presumably one of the bully's hands. Um, Vince has come back with his friends, starts whispering um, to to steal Alex away. Haley, of course, comes in, screams for dad. Then one of the one of the bullies threatens her with a knife. And one of the bullies, which presumably because he's speaking, should be Vincent, but doesn't look like it to me. Um threatens the parents. Um everything is on Alex again. Um and they decide to take Haley with them. Yeah, these kids are savage, man. Like, break into their house and take them captive. He's, like, got a blade to the girl's throat. And Vince calls his ally the doof. <laughs> I don't know how he keeps his friends around. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Justin, take us through the next few pages, and then we'll talk about this. Yeah, sort of a fascinating... The, 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 uh, Vince gets some character work, but the 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 doof and the other one uh, are never even really get names. And it's unclear whether they're actually influenced by Sinister or not, even though they're a complete psychopath. So it's I'm I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt and say that Sinister got got his mental hands on them as well. But um but yeah, it's it's so we we transition now to the dastardly plan that's been sort of everything's been uh the ante has been upped by Sinister's um mental manipulations and um uh, Alex is sleeping in bed, uh, and then uh, the the villains break in. This, these minions break in and attempt to kidnap him. Uh, of course, Haley, being Ninja Haley, uh, runs across the plot, is about to scream for Dad, but then gets the blade to the throat. And uh, uh, cart the two of them are cart carted off, uh, gagged. Um, and yeah, one of the minions says, or, or I guess Vince says, good, we're taking her with us. If either of them fights us, kill her. I mean, this is really, you know, this is pretty uh, intense uh, work for a couple of uh, local bullies in a small town. So clearly Sinister is in increasingly sort of directing the operations here. Um, they get thrown into, they get taken to a abandoned factory warehouse on the other side of town, thrown in there, and they're given a, basically a sort of a, a test where they, there's two ways out of this place, the door behind me, which I'm about to lock, and one other, you have to find the other way out. Um, while we're hunting you, basically, right? So 
again, sort of, it would be a strange mechanism for local bullies to enact their revenge when normally they would just want to beat the people up and leave. So this is clearly sinister trying to test Alex and trying to push Alex to uh, the point where he can uh, release his powers. Um, so, uh, but Haley is of course in charge here because Alex is um, uh, spinning with feverish, you know, as his powers are starting to manifest, he's getting feverish and sort of sick and he's, you know, almost incapable of running. And so Haley's directing everything, getting, get, gets them to the, the, the back door and seem, they seem trapped by the bullies at this point, but then Haley pulls another ninja move and uh, uh, knocks some um, crates over onto the villains and then gets out the back door, puts a broom through the, through the, um, uh, the handles of the door and traps the bullies on the other side. So she's completely in charge, just, you know, kicking ass and saving her brother. Um, but then on the other side of the door is Vince, who has circled around the other way. And at this point, Vince has a gun and he's shot. He, he takes a shot and to get their attention, does a, you know, villain monologue in which he's got red eyes. So I think to get again to uh, create this, you know, the the obvious connection to Sinister, that he's sort of being, you know, a Sinister's avatar really at this point. So he's got his own personal obsessions. Um, uh, it, it, the the art style gets more compact through throughout this this sequence in the in the warehouse where um, most of the issue tends to be around a four panel grid, but this is going to six panels. Uh, it's a little bit more compressed and trying to create a, 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 a quicker clip to the to the pacing um, as it becomes more action oriented. Haley goes for uh, goes for Vince, tries to you know just kick the shit out of him uh, in Haley fashion. She gets shot in the leg, and she does not scream in pain. She does not cry out. It is unbelievable. She like later on engages in dialogue and she is, and she, and then she runs with, with uh, Alex later with um, a, a bullet through her leg. So Haley is an unbelievable, you know, I, she needs to be, I think snapped up by, by the Avengers or something. Uh, yeah. That's my biggest takeaway from this issue is I want more Haley Blanding. <laughs> I mean, oh my God. Yeah. This, uh, wow. Um, and she's, I don't know how old she's supposed to be here too, but this is remarkable. So um, there is, uh, so um, Alex is now completely cornered by Vince and a gun to his face, uh, but Alex is still not manifesting his powers. And so um, I think Sinister uh, is, you know, uh, creating another set of manipulations, which one more test, right? Which is basically, I'm not gonna kill you here. I'm gonna go and kill your adopted family. So, um, and I think this is another, you know, just to push Alex even farther and to get him to manifest his powers. But it also shows a little bit of strange backstory for Vince, where he says, as he's running out to to kill the uh, the adopted family, he says, "Then maybe you know how it feels like to be me. Uh, maybe you'll know what it feels like to be really different." Which is a really strange moment because we don't really know much about Vince's backstory at all, except that he hasn't been loved by his family. Um, but you know, what does he mean by that? And so. You know, I, I I take it a bit as sinister speaking through him. So so maybe this is to a certain extent sinister talking about his own feeling of isolation and difference. Uh, it's an interesting sort of moment in the dialogue. I read it. I read it almost as like the white man rage. You think you've had it hard in a minority? You don't know how hard it's been for me, right? Like I'm supposed to be the quarterback. Fuck you. Uh, which I did. I wasn't very sympathetic toward this guy, uh, but maybe it's sinister speaking through him also. Yeah, I mean, I, there's definitely the uh, exactly that that phenomenon, the white man rage for sure, um, against a minority. But um, but there, but then it, this sort of turn where it's like, actually, I'm really different. Like, makes me my immediate response of being a queer reader was like, oh, he's he's gay or something, you know. Sure. But 
but I, it, it was it's tr it's a little awkward, right? And and again, it may be sort of speaking towards sinister. Who knows? Um, I think it could be read a few different ways. The um, so so then the the two kids follow him, and we we end with um, uh, a shot here uh, at the Blanding's house where um, uh, where he's uh, the the minion here is about to destroy their water heater and blow up the house. So goodbye, Coach Blanding's. But nice to good to know you. Not which is a sort of lovely expression from that time era. Not um, and we, and we uh, yeah. So my my section ends there. So then uh, uh, Vince is ready to blow up the water heater with a gun, but Alex gets there in time. Unbidden to him, he is crying, he is sweating, he is glowing with energy. His powers activate at that moment, which is a common thing for mutants to have their powers activate during times of trauma. And a giant plasma burst comes out and uh, Vince is just obliterated. There's a bizarre panel of his head kind of exploding, his jaws too wide. Uh, he's covered in yellow energy and he's left like a, a husk of a skeleton glowing cosmic energy afterward. Uh, Alex with like this powerful, uh, it's, it's this really pathetic, sad image of him, giant eyes with this energy glowing in his hands. He's muttering, what did I do? What did I do? What am I? And Haley's immediately grateful. She says, I don't know how you did it, but you saved them. That's all that matters. You did the right thing. It's what Todd would have done. But we can never tell anyone what happened. They'd take you away from us. You've got to forget this. Uh, he says, but what am I, Haley? What did I do? And then Sinister walks in. You, my boy, are a mutant. A mutant with the ability to absorb cos ambient cosmic rays into the cells of your body where you can transform and release it into superheated waves of plasma energy. You are descended from a genetically superior lineage. And today, you may have even surprised me with the potential power you command. Uh, he introduces himself as sinister. He says, you're correct in assuming that the memories of today's events must be deeply buried. And so they will. He has some telepathic control, sinister does. Uh, he says, Vincent's just one more runaway that's gonna have gone missing. He then puts a genetic lock on Alex's powers, uh, which will, quote, curtail the development, end quote, of his mutant powers, uh, which is something we see later because Alex's powers are tied to the living pharaoh. They don't activate until he's older. Uh, and then he says, you are the inferior Summer's brother. For while you possess even greater potential power than Scott, you lack all control. Forget this day, Alex. One day, if you ever do gain the control needed to harness your powers, we will meet again. And then it fades away. Stan Lee pops back in rather abruptly and says, huh, I wonder, I bet this isn't this isn't over yet. Uh, see you next time. Bye, everybody. And that's kind of uh, the very abrupt ending. Uh, the tragedy of this, uh, the the storyline of Alex, we get to see his adoptive family. We see his powers manifest for the first time. We learn Sinister's influence here. Tell me some of the resonance for you as we're kind of wrapping this story up. What stuck with you? What did you love and or hate? I was trying to psychoanalyze this. I mean, what would this do to a young child? Give them an inferiority complex. As we mentioned earlier, desperate to please, open to manipulation. So that's where I was thinking about the repercussions for Alex as as he grows up. There, there's also this the, the sort of double edge, right? Where his his father tells him, "I'm proud of you for not fighting back. Um, that you know, not using violence to fight back." And of course, he ultimately does fight back in the most you know horrific way possible and completely obliterates the the bully and kills him um, in order to save the father. So that's um, who told him not to do that. 
basically. Um, so that's sort of an interesting little psychological drama that will, you know, stick with with the character, I think, where his, you know, his his the better angels of his nature want him to to re- uh, pull back and 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 have um, control. Um, and this is something, of course, that Sinister gets at directly, uh, want him to, to gain control. But of course, sometimes he has to unleash this power to, in fact, protect the people that that, that he loves and they're around him. Um, so it, it's it, it sets up that sort of um, idea of, of how is power used and misused and how it can be controlled or not controlled um, that, that resonates all through the Havoc storylines. I think that it also also says so much about how we deal with emotions, right? Alex isn't allowed to have his emotions, his own identity. He's supposed to not do anything to get back. And once once he pulls into himself so much, then he leashes out this tremendous amount of energy that is so disruptive and so damaging. And this is a this is a trend with Alex. It's like how many times do we see him accidentally destroy like a city block? Um, as again, somebody who's obsessed with the Krakoa era, I keep thinking about his dynamics with Sinister in the Hellions run and how this continues, like how this makes a beautiful yet really distressing through line of Alex's current identity. Well, in the comics, he's still being played off as the tryhard who never quite get there. He's almost the comic relief in the current X-Men team where he's played off against Cyclops, who's very effective at leadership. Uh, it's a it's a narrative trope he can't seem to quite escape. The interesting thing here, too, is back in the 90s comics, uh, this is a flashback cutaway, obviously. Howard Mackey's telling a longer story about Havoc losing uh, his faith in heroism and turning toward the dark side. Turns out he's being manipulated by the dark beast, but this is the brotherhood era where he's like, fuck it, I'm going to own my power. I'm going to fight against the establishment and I'm going to do things on my terms. Ultimately, it leads to him uh, seemingly dying, uh, getting sent to a universe where there's a version of him that did life much better than he did. And then coming back to our world at the end in a coma. So (laughs) it didn't go well in the long run. But uh, this is something Howard Mackey's exploring is the idea, Sinister's hint at the end of what would you be capable of if you ever learned how to control your power is uh, is a fascinating thing. Because this is not an easy mutant ability to have. It's one of the ones that's toughest, if I'm honest. He's, he can destroy you if he loses control of his emotions, right? Yeah. Do, do, you, do you think he will ever be allowed that, uh, that catharsis and that sort of evolution? Or will he always be the... Uh the 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 trope for the uncontrollable power for for writers i he seems to vacillate back and forth there's a period of control and then he falls back into this narrative cycle of never quite being the one that measures up it's uh it's an interesting thing but he's got a cool through line as a character uh this is a side note very quickly and just a quick question for justin specifically but how hot is coach blandings <laughs> oh yeah uh yeah definitely yeah uh, uh Fuck and Mary, maybe? No, no. <laughs> uh, My, no, nothing like a hot dad with some big arms. I mean, every yeah, coach therapy, or excuse me, coach therapy, every coach uh, fantasy I've ever had is made uh, alive in this one character. <laughs> yeah. He had massive hands, by the way. Massive hands. Massive heads. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> with his tiny, tiny wife. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh i want to see the character uh uh the the sister brought back in future Haley blandings i think is a fascinating character i'd love to see more about her relationship with alex we don't get a lot of done in one stories like this in x-men books where we get kind of a simple story that explores the childhood and psychology this is well written it's a good issue well worth the read if you haven't uh i would i would recommend diving in uh, any final thoughts on this issue before we kind of wrap up our episode for today? I just, again, as somebody who loves Alex, I appreciate this issue as something that I can point to and be like, this is, look, feel bad for him. My poor little Alex. Yeah, he comes from a rough place, man. This is a this is a hard story to read about Ooh. a little kid. Yeah. And, and, and I think that just the constant... Um, upending of of you know possible family structures for Alex is you know that's it, it is pretty heartrending you know he keeps on getting close and then having it ripped away from him yeah the, Alex, the orphan over and over again Alex in the 60s books when he first appears we meet him as a top scoring athlete and like grade great in his grades he's like almost a scholar but when his powers activate he becomes this very kind of whiny like oh my god if i lose control i'm going to destroy and kill people this sucks oh my god and he's almost whiny and we almost laugh at it but when you look at this at his origin story he's got a buried memory of actually killing someone uh that's not an easy thing for a kid to live with even if it's a hidden memory fuck you mr sinister that's <laughs> kind of where i land on that yeah. uh, uh uh michael any final thoughts Thank you for letting us dive into this issue. It was a blast. Yeah. I had a great time. Oh, I, uh, oh, I'm so honored. I see what you did there. <laughs> Segway. Uh, as we are wrapping up here, uh, let everybody know where people can find you online. Uh, and uh, if you have anything you'd like to plug, recognizing we're dropping this episode on November 18th, uh, this is a great place to do so. Uh, let's go in the reverse order of uh, Anya and then Justin and then Michael. Well, thank you so much, Chad, for having me. Um, this was amazing. As Michael said, it was a blast. Um, <laughs> you can find me. You can find me on Instagram. I have the handle Daughters of Magneto, or my so-called professional Twitter is Anya Prosser, and that's A N Y A Prosser, P R O S S E R. Um, and I don't have anything to plug yet, but in a few years, look for my dissertation that's going to be all about Wanda and Ileana. I can't wait. Uh, and I look forward to staying in touch in the meantime, Anya. I'm, I'm glad we're friends. Uh, over to Justin next. Me too. Uh, yeah, thank you, Chad, again. This has been really fun. Um, uh, I'm at uh, justinhallawesomecomics.com, on Instagram at justinhallcomics, uh, at Twitter at, if Twitter exists for much longer, um, at <laughs> justincomics. Um, and, um, uh, I'm working on this, you know, um, I'm in the beginning stages of this memoir, it's going to take a couple, a uh, couple years, but, um, uh, I'm also hopefully going to be coming up with some, some smaller projects that I've done in the, in, uh, around this, um, some comics posters I did for, for San Francisco on, um, queer San Francisco history from 1955 to 1970, leading up to the first pride. Um, and those will hopefully be released as broadsheets soon. Um, and then a, I'm obsessed with the Golden Age Wonder Woman because talk about wild and queer and one of the most radical things ever published in America. And it was a kid's comics from the 1940s. Um, and so I did a sort of parody comic about uh, Wonder Woman has left, gone back to uh, Paradise Island and uh, uh, her sort of sub 
um, boy, uh, bottom boyfriend, uh, Steve Trevor has now like, <laughs> uh, has become the, the power sub that he was always meant to be. And, and her gal pal sidekick at a candy has become the Dom daddy dyke that she was always meant to be. As well. Um, so, so that'll be coming out soon. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you again. And, uh, yeah, Anya and Michael, um, thank you. And I'm looking forward to connecting. Uh, I'll follow you guys both for sure. Uh, fantastic. Thank you, Justin. And then uh, finally, oh, and, and everybody, you can still find Justin's uh, previously published work, of course. Uh, look up uh, No Straight Lines and Hard to Swallow and the documentary. Uh, all well worth viewing. I look forward to seeing more of your published content. Uh, and then, uh, Michael, finally. Absolutely. Tough to follow Justin, but uh, I'm not on the socials, but I do have a website which describes my research. You can download my articles, and I have others in addition to the fandom stuff. There's a link to the survey and some contact information if you have any questions about my research, especially the, the fandom research. Let me just um, say the website out loud right now. It's WP, which is short for WordPress, dot Towson, T-O-W-S-O-N dot E-D-U forward slash M Elliot. That's M-E-L-L-I-O-T-T forward slash. And people can get on and take this survey to contribute to your research. They can't. There's a link to the survey, which is hosted on, on Google Forms. So you click the link on the website and it'll take you directly to it. So jump on in. It's a fascinating. I can't wait to see what happens with all this, Michael. Uh, I look forward to it. Uh, it is a genuine joy to get to know each of you. Uh, when we do these, I get to associate this issue forever with this particular group and pairing. Uh, it's such an honor to have sat down with each of you today. Thank you for your time and talents. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find me on Gray Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. I've also got a Public and a TikTok. So find those if you'd like to look at more of the content we're producing. Next episode after this one is going to feature uh, X-Men Origins Jean Grey number one with the incredible artists from Rage Gear Studios. Thank you, everybody. We will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.